You're listening to the Let's Talk Future podcast series presented by Oppenheimer. If you're interested in the economy, markets, and investing in general, you've come to the right place. This series was created to fascinate and enlighten every type of investor. Curious about the latest consumer trends? How about innovations in healthcare or technology? The Let's Talk Future series definitely has you covered. Through timely and relevant conversations, we deliver the best thought leadership in the financial services industry. Our renowned hosts and guests explore big questions and big ideas and leave you with actionable insights. In this episode, our guest is Colin Rush, Managing Director, Senior Research Analyst, and Head of Oppenheimer Sustainable Growth and Resource Optimization Franchise. And our host is Jane Ross, Managing Director of Investment Banking. This episode was recorded on September 6, 2022. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to our episode called Renewables, the Inflation Reduction Act, and Which Stocks to Watch. I'm your host, Jane Ross, and we're here with Colin Rush, the Managing Director, Senior Research Analyst, and Head of Oppenheimer's Sustainable Growth and Resource Optimization Franchise. So, we're here at an interesting time for U.S. equities in the renewable space. On the one hand, we're contending with real inflation, higher commodity costs and higher labor costs, unprecedented geopolitical risks, high interest rates, and then the usual concerns about deliverability of business plans and earnings execution. But on the other hand, the passing of the Inflation Reduction Act marks a huge investment in climate action and emissions reductions at a time when the planet is contending with record droughts, floods, and everything else. So, big concerns, big opportunities, just what we love here at Let's Talk Future. Colin Rush, our guest, is a pioneer of Wall Street research on sustainability. He's received numerous stock-picking awards. He's a repeat guest for us on this podcast. He's a friend, so let's have at it and welcome Colin. Thanks so much, Jane. It's always a pleasure. All righty. So let's just start. Where do you want to get started? I know there's there's so much. Okay, let's just like <laughs> there's like 17 different variables to keep track of. So can I can I start here actually just to to jump in because one of the things that we always kind of use as is one of our guiding principles is really trying to differentiate the signal from the noise here and you just put out a bunch of signals that we need to keep track of. But I think we, right now in this moment, we need to even take a step back from some of those massive drivers that you were talking about, that what we're engaged in here right now in our sector around all of these these things in renewables is around a, a fundamental restructuring of the global energy markets and supply chains. Uh, these are really big deals. And the, the event that we can look to is the, the Russia invasion of Ukraine really changing some of those geopolitical relationships. Um, you know, but that, that's been in the works for, for a couple of decades, really. And so as, as we look at you know, how to think about just contextualizing that process and the dependence around low-cost manufacturing in Southeast Asia, around the number of the names that we, we work with and the supply chains that are supporting some of these technology adoptions, we really want to think about how that geopolitical maneuvering is happening as, as the first signal that we're watching. And clearly that's kind of in flux right now in terms of how that's going to play out. The, the second thing is around how you're rebalancing, um, you know, in an individual economy and, and how you 
right the borders around that. Like in, in the U.S., you know, we certainly have the U.S., but we're connected, you know, between states and, you know, amongst the U.S. and, and Canada on the energy assets. And, and it's very similar in Europe uh, and how that, that all works, that there's a lot of cross-border activity. But within the individual geographies, and, and I'm looking at it right now in New York, is that we're, we're moving towards electrification. And so, you know, as we look at a the thought process of electrification, it's not just about the transportation market, but it's really about the heating market as well um, and the other demands around the electrical grid. And so we're moving from natural gas heating in many geographies to electrical heat. And that's a, a mandate that's happening in New York City, but also something that's happening in a number of other geographies. And so as, as we think about this kind of shifting you know, we're thinking about the, the big the big movements in the energy market. The secondary movement is around electrification of everything. And then how are we looking at the, the basic materials, you know, components and supply chains within that electrification element? And so I, I just want to set the table of, of those big drivers here as we dig into these issues around inflation and interest rates and the impact around unit economics for the individual applications. Yeah, I, I like that. And you just gave me a little bit of a sub headline, the electrification of everything. I like that. So I know you wrote a piece in July talking about costs and um, higher commodity costs and impact of inflation, given the electrification of everything, but the pressures of what your companies are seeing in terms of higher costs, how are you coming at that? It's it's such a good question because there's there's a couple of really you know key drivers for us when you look at renewables um, in general is you tend to have lower fuel costs because you're looking at sun wind and, and other natural resources that are driving the fuel and so your capex numbers end up being higher uh, and then you you think about your cost of capital as being a bigger variable in this and so when we think about costs there's you know kind of key elements within that that big cost number, the cost of capital is the biggest variable. And so interest rates moving higher across the board is really, really important. But obviously your relative cost of capital is also important when you think about uh, fuel volatility, you know, and, and the risk around some of the access to those fuels is one element. And so we t- typically see renewables having a lower risk profile because we can map out, you know, kind of what those natural resources performance are. So as we see interest rates go higher, that could be seen as a headwind on some level, but we're also expecting, you know, that the relative delta between the risk profile of traditional energy sources and renewables ends up widening. And so there's a relative advantage that's coming there. And so there's that dynamic that we need to watch closely. The second piece is around cost structure, right? And, and typically what we'll see with, you know, the hardware and the, the, the hard component costs versus labor so you tend to have labor as kind of a 20 to 25 percent component of uh, a lot of these these elements. You know, it ends up being a little bit lower for like vehicles, um, but if you're looking at power assets, that's kind of a, a decent rule of thumb to think about that 20 to 25 percent. And so that that labor piece will typically end up being an opportunity and a differentiator, like access to labor and being able to control those labor costs by moving things into factories, you know, so for pre-assembly is, is a is a really good trend. So that pre-assembly trend is something that we've really liked here within this this environment because you get labor efficiencies. And then when we look at the the, the actual cost of the equipment, there's a there's a handful of things. Is one your your manufacturing process around these technologies, but also your raw material inputs. And so we look at companies like Albemarle 
we go back to those raw material providers on the battery side because there's so much leverage, you know, from high quality materials as you go into the battery space. And I think that's the other kind of thematic that we really love in this space is finding areas where you can compete on quality for efficiency. Right. So if you look at, you know, yield in a battery factory, as an example, you know, having higher quality materials translates directly into yield. And there's a lot of extra value capture for a company like Albemarle that really competes on the quality of the inputs, uh, as well as, you know, the fact that they've got a better resource that they can access for folks. And so when we look at this this cost structure, you've got the cost of capital, which we think there's an increasing advantage because of the, the risk profile of the technology. On the labor side, we're looking at things moving from infield labor to in-factory labor. And then within the, the, the technology platforms, we're looking at elements that end up being not a huge part of the, the bill of materials for these elements, but things that have high leverage from an efficiency of performance or yield within them. And so, you know, we look at names like Albemarle, you know, on the, the material side. Yeah, the materials side for batteries and power electronics, both are important here. For batteries, we just upgraded uh, Wolfspeed, which is the, the leading um, provider of silicon carbide uh, into power electronics. And to put this in context, I think folks really remember um, when the Porsche Taycan came out, uh, it was a huge moment for Tesla because the range on the Taycan was 220 to 240 miles. Um, and the issue for that uh, product was that they, they built on a 800 volt architecture and Porsche did not get comfortable with the silicon carbide supply chain to support 800 volt uh, rather than 400 volt, which is, it's, there's a variety of complications there. But what it did, it was rather than using silicon carbide, they used silicon and rather than having 280 to 300 mile range, they had 220 to 240 mile range. That's the sort of thing where there's an awful lot of value provided by the the power electronics there for the performance of the vehicle. And we see Wolf Speed is turning a corner on that. But those are the sort of names that we're looking at right now. Yeah, and we're going to get into some more detail on names in a little bit. But so given what you said, it sounds like you think these companies are in a position to manage these cost pressures. Um, and I know just for our listeners, you wrote a really good piece on this in, in July. Let's spend a couple minutes on the upside here with the Inflation Reduction Act. You know, there's a lot of headlines. Can we spend a few minutes on how you expect the dollars to flow and timeframes and, and all of that? Yeah, for, for sure. So there's there's always a, a few stages of these things, right? Um, so the first thing that we always look at is what, what sort of projects are in queue, right? And so you've got a, a variety of backlog you know, across the industry in terms of factories that are being built or power plants that are being built uh, or efficiency programs that are, are about to roll out. And that that backlog had already gotten us really constructive on our, our coverage universe for a while. Like there is so much demand because the unit economics are just compelling. It's cheaper to put solar plus storage on your house than it is to pay your electricity bill in over half the country. That gets better now with the Inflation Reduction Act. You know, in many geographies on, uh, on EVs, and this is pretty much across the country right now, even with lower fuel prices right now than, than we saw at the peak, you still have about a you know, $68,000 advantage on a total cost of ownership basis for owning an EV versus. Stay on that for a minute because there seems to be controversy around that. So can you say that again? What's the cost differential and yeah, so it, when when we look at total cost of ownership, and we've been publishing on this back to uh, early 2021, and you look at the the maintenance, 
the fuel expense and the upfront cost. The delta between an EV and an internal combustion engine-based uh, vehicle, you know, the, the EV has an advantage in, in terms of cost of ownership and fuel expense around sixteen dollars to $18,000 over the life of the, the vehicle. And so when you layer in the extra, call it $10,000 of expense around the upfront, you know, where, you know to get the vehicle plus the, the charging install at your home, you end up with that six to $8,000 advantage. And that is now getting better with the extension of the EV tax credits, right? And so if you're looking at buying a new car, now is the time to be looking at those EVs. Um, and we're, you know, we're watching all the production, but the, the, the material, you know, economic advantage of that technology is real and expanding at this point. Okay. And then what about for solar with the Inflation Reduction Act? We're seeing ongoing tax incentives, right? And and, and what that really does is it provides visibility uh, to the cost structure for, for the, the technology. What we've seen is fascinating because I started doing this way too long ago, right? And my first solar demand model was in 2006. Uh, and we were looking at, you know, we've seen a... Um, legitimately 100x growth in the solar demand uh, in those uh, those 17 years. Um, but when we look at natural gas volatility uh, and natural gas prices relative to what's going on in the solar space, we were already uh, in the camp that was looking at solar as the low cost option for baseload power, right? And so you have to augment that with uh, with an energy storage system to get, to get a firm power asset to meet the, that baseload power. But we already thought that that solar in most geographies in the U.S. were already economic, and we've published on that repeatedly. Now what we've got you know, with the Inflation Reduction Act and the extension of the, the investment tax credits is more of a level playing field. And what I think a lot of people misunderstand around traditional energy assets is that there's a tremendous amount of incentives uh, that are provided for those companies in terms of land access, you know, job tax credits. And that really doesn't happen for solar construction. And so by having this 30% tax credit and some visibility, there's an, you know, an ability for developers to commit to economics uh, earlier, which allows them to scale up, which allows them to drive costs down even further. And so we were already seeing the solar industry break through on being the low cost source of resource, but this allows for a level of planning and a level of supply chain development to happen in this country that is really unprecedented. There's only been a, a handful of folks that tried to make solar solar panels in this, this country. And really the only company that's remained is for solar with the support of import tariffs. And now as we look at this, uh, you know, tremendous kind of transformation of the, the power grid, we're seeing um, a surprising number of factories coming to our to, to us to, to look at evaluation for capital raising and um, you know vertically integrated models where you've got factories plus developers coming to the table to say hey listen we can stack the margins and be very very competitive with domestic manufacturing which starts to change some of that geopolitical calculation for politicians and some of our own geopolitical risk here as investors let's stay on that given your work in solar stocks and infrastructure, what are the companies that and the stocks that you think listeners should be paying attention to? So First Solar is a name that we upgraded recently, and, and it was really based on the potential for some incremental manufacturing credits um, in the solar industry. We think they're going to have full 11 cents a watt you know, of, of gross margin that they capture through those, those tax incentives. And that's on top of what we had already expected in kind of the five to six cent range. And so the earnings power on for that company as they scale manufacturing, and they just announced a few weeks ago an, an incremental factory in the southeast. 
U.S. is um, really substantial on the order of a you know eight to twelve dollars of additional earnings power for that stock, which is trading right around one hundred twenty dollars right now. And so, if we put a traditional multiple on that, you know, we're going from a view that they had kind of three to five dollars of earnings power into the low teens to mid teens, you know, and, and that stock has the potential to double from the low hundreds into the north of $200 range. And so that's a name where we have a, a management team that's proven its ability to not only um, finance and, and build factories, but to improve their technology and have an established customer base in the US. And so that's a company that we're, we're very focused on. Secondarily, looking at efficiency within the solar space, uh, a company like Enphase that has proven to be uh, an innovator around um, integrated chip technology for managing power with a distributed architecture. They uh, certainly can build and assemble their products in the US and access some additional tax credits. But really, the real driver for them is just fundamental unit economics that is just cheaper to install the technology than to pay your electricity bill in such large portions of the country that we have um, you know, a decade's worth of growth uh, for that, that segment. And they're going to be a leader from market share, not only because they have a structural cost advantage, but because they make it easy to install the technology. And so those would be two topics for us on the technology side uh, around the solar space. Yeah, I know that equation here, you know, I moved to California and immediately put in solar panels and it's just been such a win. What about stocks in the uh, electric vehicle space and the infrastructure to support that? Yeah, I'll go. I'll start with Albemarle to begin with. And, and I'll just kind of go through a couple of key points here. One, they have about 35% market share on lithium. Uh, in terms of the global lithium supply. They also have a structural cost advantage because they have higher um, concentration within their their resources. But then when you look downstream and and you look at the difficulty of mining lithium, it's an incredibly um, challenging process. And it's uh, one that we've seen a variety of companies attempt and fail at. And so there's a variety of safety issues. There's a lot of sensitivity around the treatment of the the raw materials to come out the other side with a high quality product that meets specs. And so there's been a lot of discussion around lithium as a commodity. And I think to a certain extent, there's some truth to that, that getting to 99.9% concentrate is not, you know, ultimately heroic. What is interesting is what's in that 0.1%. And as we move into advanced battery chemistries, what's in that 1% dictates what your yield is for the evolving cathodes in the in the batteries and that's something that we think folks have missed fundamentally around the the album world story that it's been really seen as a, a supply side you know cost advantage um you know company in a in a commodity market we don't think they get the credit for the the the, the value of the technology platform now on top of that we're seeing you know, lithium is the long pole in the tent for the EV supply chain. So as as EV adoption grows, you know, it takes around three or four years to develop an EV platform and get it into production, you know, from designing the vehicle into getting the, the manufacturing ready and, and supply chain ready. A typical greenfield lithium mine takes five to seven years to go through permitting and ramp up. And so when we look at, you know, kind of some of the components within the auto space, that can be a six to nine month process, and then all the way up through that kind of platform development. But when you look at the raw material supply chain, um, lithium is one typically in, in remote areas, you know, in, in high concentrates. And so to get the infrastructure built out to support a mining operation can be very challenging. On top of the permitting, you know, getting a labor force in place to do that, and then ramping up those, um, you know, kind of fairly substantial, you know, production, uh, you know, 
facilities to, to really support that. And so as we look at what's going on across the EV supply chain, that lithium piece we think continues to be in short supply as we go through this, you know, fairly aggressive ramp, you know, across the globe and, and the move from, towards electrification of multiple vehicle types, not just passenger vehicles. So what about charging and infrastructure? The next piece, and we saw this um, just last week with ChargePoint earnings, is really around where do you charge and how do you how do you charge? And I think the, the first thing that investors need to understand is that you charge where the car sits, right? And so you want to think about that as, as kind of the first benchmark. And that typically is at home. Um, most vehicles sit at home idle and they're idle 96, 97% of the time. So at home is the first place. The second place is typically at work. And then you're looking at, you know, at, at stores and hotels and things like that. So you, you want to think about what those businesses are that will have charging uh, access, you know, as part of uh, whatever their core business is. And so if you think about um, a workplace, you're thinking about, you know, kind of the cost of charging as an amenity for your, or, a, you know, a resource for your employees that costs about the same as providing coffee to employees. And so workplace and then, um, you know, in you know, the retail stats suggest that if you have EV charging in front of your store, you know, typically consumers spend about twice as much in the store and, you know, tend to, to spend about twice as much time in those stores as well. So you have a little bit more time with those customers. So it ends up being a marketing investment um, uh, for those folks. But to manage all of those assets, you need the software integration to do that. And so what we think ChargePoint does better than anybody else, and, and we think they have great hardware, but really manage the full business operations for their customers to do those sites those kind of um, location-sided assets and really integrate that through your your accounting system. And so we think ChargePoint is really going to be driving an awful lot of volume because of their systems uh, approach to integrating charging into a business process for whether it's Target or whatnot. And we've seen that with them really booking business with, you know, over 50% of the Fortune 100 companies in the world and really getting embedded in the business systems, which we think is a really sticky place to be for them. Next one is really WolfSpeed, you know, talking about silicon carbide and the adoption of that, not just for EVs, but also all the associated electronics, just because you have lower heat losses and better efficiency on those things. And then we're talking about real design around the powertrains. And um, in what we're seeing right now is that Tesla continues to stretch out in front of folks, um, all of their peers in terms of efficiency of their powertrain. And, and really what you're looking at is minimizing uh, your battery weight and turning that chemical energy into torque. And they do that better than anyone. It's a mix of, you know, not only battery technology, but power electronics and the, the efficiency and optimization of the motors there. And so as I look across the EV supply chain, those are the four top names for us. Okay. You know, we're called Let's Talk Future and we like to talk about future stuff. Is there, just quickly, is there any you know, surprises, game-changing potential in technology that you're watching that could, you know, really have an impact? The thing that I'm spending a lot of time on is really the battery technology. I think that's so critical. The the efficiency of those technologies and the evolution there, there's some real disruption left to happen. And we've been involved in, in a variety of those. Inovix, uh, NVX is a company that's really transforming how silicon anodes uh, are integrated into batteries from an architecture perspective. And we're seeing them with some very large customers in the consumer electronics space, you know, looking at some of the other uh, silicon uh, anode technologies, which we're pretty bullish on. Um, there's, a, there's a variety of players that are coming up here. And so that's an area that we're spending a lot of time on to be smart. And, and we think there's uh, a lot of white space there to disrupt these industries and, you know, 
build some fairly large businesses there. But that's one area. The other really exciting element that we're working on is is in the uh, the vertical takeoff and landing vehicles, the EVA tools. Uh, and so Lilium is a company that, that we've gotten very comfortable with um, in terms of the management and their ability to drive regulatory process, um, both in Europe and the US. But we think that starts to change, not necessarily passenger movement, but really the way goods are moved on a regional basis. You know, as, as we look at some challenges around the trucking industry and the rail industry, uh, and the drive towards on-demand and real-time delivery, um, those vehicles are positioned well to not only serve the the passenger market if it develops, and we think it will develop, but also uh, augment that with um, you know a logistics element as well. And we think that space is one that um, is a few years away, but is the education process is happening now with investors and the the foundation there is getting built right now. Okay, well, we have done it and we have stayed in 25 minutes. So that's that's just a win. Colin, thank you again for sharing your, your expertise with us. It's always a pleasure and just a wonderful conversation. So thank you. Always my pleasure, Jane. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Future. We know your podcast listening options are endless, so we're glad you're spending time with us. Don't miss out on our next episode. And remember to subscribe today. Join our community to expand your thoughts on business, the markets, and the dynamic forces affecting them. It's time to talk future.